0: Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Katherine Garrod. Today, I'm joined by public historian and my former roommate, Rachel Steinberg. Rachel is currently finishing her master's in public health at the University of Colorado, and she runs a research study aimed at preventing childhood diabetes among American Indian kids. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Glad to have you with us. A little bit of background about Rachel. When we lived together, she used to work transcribing Abigail Adams' papers. So I thought that she would be pretty good to have on the podcast and talk about an Abigail Adams' letter. But can you tell me about how you got involved in that project?
1: Absolutely. So before I realized I needed to work in public health, I thought I was going to work in museum anthropology. I finished undergrad, and while I was living in Charlottesville with Katie, I actually talked to a cousin who was like, Oh, I've got a job opening. Um, I know somebody at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. You want to do that? And I was like, Sure, yeah, why not? So I would work with a partner a couple hours a week, and one of us would be looking at a microfiche copy of the handwritten letter of someone like Abigail Adams or John Quincy Adams and reading it out loud. And then the other person would be looking at a type transcript and essentially put back in what we would think of as errors, things like weird spelling, weird punctuation. And the idea was just to make the transcripts more literally representative of what the handwritten letters had in them. Okay. So yeah. So I mean, I'm just like, I remember reading Abigail letters and being like, Gosh, she has great handwriting, which she cannot spell to save her life. (laughs) Because there wasn't standardized spelling. So, you know, if she wanted to spell the word business, like buisiness, like B-I-S. I I mean, which she did every time. At least she was consistent. Oh, she
0: was consistent with buisiness.
1: Oh, yeah. It was like a running joke. Like everybody knew that's how Abigail spells business. Um, (laughs) But I do remember Abigail and John Quincy Adams both had lovely handwriting. And they were like the only ones who did. That's so funny because I've
0: only ever heard of Abigail Adams as having really bad handwriting. I th- I read it in a footnote somewhere that she had really frustrating bad handwriting.
1: Okay, it's frustrating. I will give you that. But once, <laughs> if you're doing a bunch of them in, the, in a row, you know, you get used to it and it's like actually very clear. It's not all really, really tiny or how do I explain it? Like I get what they're saying that it's frustrating. She also did this thing where she'd put a comma where you should have a period and a period where you should have a comma, so figuring out... <laughs> Where sentences end is a kind of an issue, but you can't really blame people. I mean, there's no, there's no standard. There's no standards. Exactly.
0: All right. So this week's letter, because I knew that Rachel had some background with Abigail Adams, I do not have very much. I had to do a lot of research to even get sort of the basic idea of what's happening at the time of this letter. So I have picked a letter from Mary Smith Cranch to Abigail Adams, uh, and I just want to give a quick shout out and huge thank you to Gwen Fries. It's either Gwen Fries or Gwen Free's. I'm so sorry. I don't know how to pronounce your name. I've only ever read it. Uh, She works at the Massachusetts Historical Society. I follow her on Twitter. And she was always tweeting hilarious and great quotes from the family letters of the Adams papers. And I thought, this is a person that will understand the gist of the podcast I want to make. So I asked if she had any good ones to send me. And she came through with this list of fantastic letters. So this one I'm pretty excited about. It has political intrigue. It's very funny. It has some very juicy gossip. So I am ready to get going with this letter. First off, a little bit of context. Mary Smith Cranch is Abigail Adams' older sister by three years. She was born in Weymouth, Massachusetts, um, and she married Richard Cranch on 25th November 1762 oh i said that the european way 25th november (laughs) (laughs) Uh, she and her husband settled in braintree massachusetts she was really close with her sister uh and her their younger sister elizabeth there's a whole book that's about the letters between mary cranch abigail adams and their younger sister and actually uh mary smith cranch's husband courted her at about the same time that john adams was courting abigail adams and there's a really cute young john adams letter where he's flirting with Uh, Abigail. At the time of this letter, Mary Smith Cranch is writing to Abigail on September 24th, 1786. At this point, Abigail Adams is in England with her husband. John Adams had been sent to Paris. Oh, John Adams had gone all the way back in 1780 to Paris to help negotiate the Treaty of Paris, and then he stayed there for a while. Abigail joined him for his last eight months in Paris before he uh, was sent to England to be American minister to the court of St. James, where he was just miserable the entire time, apparently. But... Abigail brought their daughter, also named Abigail. This is another fun thing about documentary editing. The way that you're supposed to identify women in documentary editing, you should use their maiden name and their last name. So technically, Abigail Adams is Abigail Smith Adams. Well, her daughter is named after her. So there's Abigail Smith Adams, and then her daughter, Abigail Adams Smith, (laughs) which is delightful. Uh, And the good people at the Massachusetts Historical Society have solved this by referring to her as AA2. (laughs) 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 which I like, but uh, I don't know if that translates to podcast as well. But so anyway, her nickname, the daughter's nickname was Nabby. So that's another way to do it. So Abigail went to England with Nabby and she left her sons in the care of mary smith cranch at the time that this letter was written john quincy adams was back from his time uh in saint petersburg where he was working as a boy diplomat with russia uh and he was able to join harvard as a junior in 1785 so john quincy adams is attending harvard his aunt sort of looking after him and john and abigail have just returned from a trip to the netherlands where they had been until early september at the time that this letter is written and their daughter nabby had just gotten married to William Stephen Smith. How's that sound, Rachel? Is there some context there?
1: (laughs) That's so much context. (laughs) And I'm just, I mean, I was thinking as you were saying, like the Abigail Smith-Adams, Abigail Adams-Smith thing, just like, like name your kids something else. I'm sorry, (laughs) but. Now that we have
0: an idea of what's going on, I'm going to go ahead and read the letter. Okay, so this is Mary Smith-Cranch to Abigail Adams, Braintree, September 24th, 1786. My dear sister, in my last I told you I supposed your son Thomas would enter college at the end of his vacancy. He did so, and entered with honor. He could not have a chamber in college this year, but he has a very good one at Mr. Sewell's, and boards with the family. It is not so well as boarding in college, but it was the best thing we could do. We have furnishes, his chamber, with cousin Charles' furniture. It was no easy thing to get him, cousin Tom, into a place we liked. One asked too much, and another had boarders we did not like he should be connected with and others were full already. The doctor and I spent two days in Cambridge before we could get a place to our minds.
1: Can I just say this reminds me so much of like on and off campus housing and when you're trying <laughs> to like move your furniture in the fall like some things don't change.
0: I, I do I like the idea that um there were borders that she's like oh not those
1: people. <laughs> nope you cannot live here. <laughs>
0: I went with Betsy. Betsy uh, is Mary Cranch's daughter, Elizabeth Cranch Norton. I went with Betsy last week to, to see Mrs. Fuller and Colonel Hall and Lady, and I returned through Cambridge. Our sons are well. Cousin JQA had been unwell. A bad swimming in his head attended with a sick stomach, occasioned, I believe, by want of exercise and too close application to his studies. His cousin and brothers complain that they cannot get him out. I talked to him of the necessity of walking and some relaxation. I shall see him again this week and shall give him a puke if he
1: has a return of it. Which means she's going to make him throw up if he doesn't start to feel better. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I looked it up to see if there was any other definition for puke and all of the other ones were out of use. Like, it seems like puke was an article of clothing in like the 1600s, but I'm pretty sure that at this point, just puke meant she was going to give him something to make him throw up, which is about peak 18th century medical knowledge at the time. Oh, yeah. so
1: Like that, they'd be like, this is the solution. Absolutely. <laughs> you
0: studying too hard? Just
1: throw up. <laughs> Can I just say also like classic JQA being a nerd, like this is just what he's gonna be for the rest of his life first off i didn't i didn't call
0: him jqa she wrote jqa everybody always calls him jqa which i enjoy
1: it's fun to say it's just fun
0: judge fuller and lady were well mrs fuller desired me to tell you that she sent her most affectionate regards to you and hoped to see you again in your own country she was with her daughter who is in a poor state of health her lungs are disordered she has three children two daughters and a son but the poor little fellow was very sick He is a beautiful boy, about six months old. The colonel has a fine countenance and is a fine figure. They appear to be very happy. She has an excellent temper and inherits her mama's benevolence. They live near Watertown Bridge, have a very handsome house, and tis very well furnished. She is much improved by her camp life. Now, I don't know what she means by camp life.
1: I don't know either. I mean, like, you would think it's like if the army is on the move, then they'd be staying in a camp, but where could it be going?
0: That's, I I don't know, for 1786 at this time period. Maybe she was one of the wives that followed their husbands around um, to the camps. Anyway, more research required. Sorry about that. (laughs) Colonel Hull is acquainted with Colonel Smith and told me more about him than anybody I have seen. He was brought up with Colonel Humphreys and expects him in a few days upon a visit and has promised to bring him to see us. As I was sitting in my chamber the other day, oh, and here's another name I don't know how to pronounce, As I was sitting in my chamber the other day, Mr. Wybird came into the house. In a few minutes, I heard him tell Betsy that her cousin Nabby was married, that Oakes Angier was dead, and that Mrs. P.L.R. was brought to bed. I was rejoiced at the first, felt solemn at the second, and was astonished at the last piece of news. (laughs) More on this later. Accept my congratulations, my dear sister. I hope the dear girl will be happy, but I cannot bear the idea of your leaving her in Europe. I have not yet been called to part with any of my children, but I think it must be very hard to do it. So, uh, yeah, Nabby got married in England, so there is a very real possibility that she would be staying behind in England. That doesn't end up being the case. (laughs) Yeah, gross. (laughs) Uh, And we'll get into um, Oaks Anger in a little bit and Mrs. P.L.R. So, I am impatient to receive letters from you. If the disunited States of America will forward your return, you will be here soon. We are all in confusion, and what will be the consequence? I know not. Anarchy, I fear.
1: Oh, gosh. (laughs) Sorry. Like, she is so dramatic throughout this letter, but to me, this paragraph is the most, and the next one, the most dramatic. The excess of liberty, which the Constitution
0: gave the people, has ruined them. There is not the least energy in government. You will see by the public prints what manner the mob have stopped the courts and opened jails and what their list of grievances are. There must be more power somewhere or we are ruined, but how to acquire it is the question. The people will not pay their tax, nor their debts of any kind.
1: I like that she frames it as they just won't pay their debts. They just won't do it, guys. (laughs) They just, it's not that they don't have any money. Sorry, I get like really heated about this perspective on Shay's Rebellion. We're going to come back to this.
0: This is one perspective of Shay's Rebellion. (laughs) So the people will not pay their debts and who shall make them? These things affect us most severely. Mr. Cranch has been laboring for the public for three or four years without receiving scarcely any pay. The treasury has been so empty that he could not get it. And now, my sister, there is not a penny in it. The public owe us 300 pound, and we cannot get a shilling of it. And if the people will not pay their tax, how shall we ever get it? An attendance upon the court of common pleas was the only thing that has produced any cash for above two year. Part of this always went to pay Billy's quarter bills. If we had not lived with great caution, we must have been in debt, a thing I dread more than the most extreme poverty.
1: That is such a weird statement to me, that she's more afraid of debt than poverty.
0: It's also interesting, the people who were most in debt at this time were uh, farmers, and then... Because the Treasury had no money, um, they were raising the taxes up to, I think, like 30 or 40% at this time. And so farmers who already didn't have any money, who were already cash poor, there had been a lot of economic issues, obviously, during the American Revolution. There just wasn't any money. So they kept taxing people higher and higher and higher. And then if they couldn't pay their taxes, they'd take their land. And so that's what inspired Shays' Rebellion. The Rebellion first shut down the courts. So it actually, her husband is one of of the first people affected by the Shays' Rebellion, (laughs) I think is interesting, because he's one of the lawyers in the courts that is now no longer getting paid. So this is very much the lawyer's perspective of Shays' Rebellion. (laughs) Mr. Cranch is very dull, says he must come home to go to watch mending and farming and leave the public business to be transacted by those who can afford to do it without pay. What will be the end of these things? I am not a politician enough to say they have a most gloomy appearance. I believe I told you in a former letter that Mr. Angier was in a consumption. He did not suppose himself dangerous until three days before he died and then sent for Mr. Reed, his minister, and wished to have his children baptized, but did not live to have it done. This is all I have heard about him. So Oakes Angier was a former clerk for John Adams. He appears in John Adams notes and in an Abigail Adams letters as someone who's smart, but maybe a little bit full of himself. And so it's a little bit interesting that they frame him dying by saying he did not suppose himself dangerous until three days before he
1: died. Yeah. I mean, just knowing that consumption is tuberculosis and knowing how chronic that can be, it just makes you wonder. Like, I mean, he obviously didn't have it for only three days. Like, you know, he, had, he had tuberculosis for quite a long time if that's what killed him. It's just that he was symptomatic and in critical condition for three days. Anyway, I'm getting- Wow, this
0: health side is really adding a little flavor to
1: this. <laughs> well, there's so many like vague illnesses mentioned. This is the only illness in the letter that they actually say what it was, which is mm. kind of interesting to me.
0: We live in an age of discovery. One of our acquaintance has discovered that a full-grown child may be produced in less than five months, as well as in nine, provided the mother should meet with a small fright a few hours before its birth. You may laugh, but it is true. The lady's husband is so well satisfied of it that he does not seem to have the least suspicion of it being other ways. But how can it be? For he left this part of the country the beginning of September last and did not return until the 6th of April, and his wife brought him this fine girl the first day of the present month. Now, the only difficulty seems to be whether it is the product of a year or 20 weeks. She affirms it is the latter, but the learned and the obstetric art say that it is not possible. The child is perfect large and strong. I have seen it, my sister. It was better than a week old, tis true, but a finer baby I never saw. It was the largest she ever had, her mother says. I thought so myself, but I could not say it. It was a matter of so much speculation that I was determined to see it. I went with trembling steps and could not tell whether I should have courage enough to see it till I had knocked at the door. I was asked to walk up by and was followed by her husband. The lady was sitting by the side of the bed, suckling her infant. And not far from her, with one slipper off, and one foot just stepped in the other. There's a blank here. So she says, and not far from her, blank, with one slipper off, and one foot just stepped into the other. I had not seen him since last May. He looked. I cannot tell you how. He did not rise from his seat. Perhaps he could not. I spoke to him, and he answered me, but hobbled off as quick as he could, without saying anything more to me. There appeared the most perfect harmony between all three. She was making a cap and observed that she had nothing ready to put her child in as she did not expect to want them so soon. I made no reply. I could not. I make no remarks. Your own mind will furnish you with sufficient matter for sorrow and joy and many other sensations, or I am mistaken. Adieu, yours affectionately,
1: Mrs. Cranch. There's just so much to unpack in that last part of the letter. (laughs)
0: Again, kudos to Gwen Fries for sending me this one. She said, I don't know if this one's funny or if it's just more gossipy. And I'm like, oh.
1: Both? It is, it is both funny and it's gossipy. It's definitely both. I mean, okay, so are you going to talk about the fact that Nabby almost married this guy that actually fathered this baby? Anyway, you should explain that part.
0: Okay, all right. So. So this, the previous few letters I've done haven't had uh, much annotation, but this one I was able to get from the Massachusetts Historical Society and the John Adams papers. So there is annotation explaining some of the stuff that's going on. So the father of this child, not the woman's husband, the father of this child. Who is not
1: her husband. (laughs) In case you weren't sure, you cannot have a baby in five months.
0: Mary Cranch is being pretty sneaky about it, but I think the implication was clear. So the situation here is there was a woman, Elizabeth Hunt Palmer. So that's the Mrs. P.L.R. who was mentioned earlier. Uh, She was married to a man named Joseph Palmer. So she gave birth to a daughter named Sophia, who could not have been the child of her husband. The father was a man named Royal Tyler. Now, Royal Tyler had been courting Nabby Adams right before... went off to England. And in fact, he had been courting rather successfully, but Abigail Adams put a stop to it because of things she'd heard about him from Mary Cranch. (laughs) so mary
1: cranch is like oh nabby's married is she i have some interesting news for you (laughs) i mean i feel like the very last line of this letter where she's like your mind will furnish you with sufficient matter for sorrow and joy and many other sensations like she's basically being like i told you so like aren't you glad (laughs)
0: learning more about royal tyler so he was a a lawyer later an important early playwright and novelist uh who had been courting nabby before she went to europe and he later ends up marrying the woman who gave birth to the child mrs palmer i think he
1: marries one of her other daughters he marries one of her other daughters
0: (laughs) that is so gross like real messed up (laughs) i i hate that but sophia actually ends up moving in with her half-sister and royal tyler and so it's one of those things that they didn't, it was never publicly acknowledged during their lifetimes, but later generations have come out and said that they they knew that this was the case. Rachel, I just wanted to ask you, what is something that really struck you as interesting about this letter?
1: I think because my mind is so into population health right now um, and disease and epidemiology, I was struck by how much illness is in the letter, but it's all really vague illness. It's like, oh, something's wrong with someone's lungs, or something's wrong with their head, but it's not like it's this disease or that disease. Right. With the exception of Mr. Angiers, who had consumption, tuberculosis. And I guess, I don't know how much there really is to say about that. That's probably true of almost every letter from this time, at least written by women. They're going to be really focused on marriage, babies, and death. Right. true. (laughs) But, um, I think what's interesting is that they didn't know anything about how diseases were spread at this time. I mean, they had guesses, but their guesses were pretty much wrong. They the the leading theory at this time was the theory of miasma. This idea that it was bad air that made people sick. Yeah, and uh, it wouldn't be for you know like another hundred years or so before people would realize we have germs and microbiology is a thing and you know, all of that good stuff that's now the basis of modern (laughs) medicine. I do. So I, um, obviously my background
0: is not so much in health, but when I read things like on the internet that are like, we have to go back to things that are natural and, um, you know, people lived back then, like it's not the end of the world. Reading all of these letters... People didn't live very long back then. People died. A lot of people died. And after writing enough family trees of people where you have to say this person had 14 children, six of them survived to adulthood. She had 12 children. Four of them survived to adulthood. It's. I'm very happy for modern medicine, and it really makes me appreciate modern medicine.
1: Absolutely. And not to throw in a plug for vaccinating your children, but this is a plug to vaccinate your children. <laughs> Thanks for taking this opportunity. <laughs> I mean, that little kid, she's like the six-month-old who's a beautiful little boy and is very sick right now. I was like, mm, that yes. probably has something that is vaccine-preventable.
0: Yeah, it, it gives me anxiety thinking about a time before they knew what terms were. Right? All right, so let's talk a little bit more about Shay's Rebellion. and
1: My favorite Rebellion. Just kidding. I don't know that I have a favorite.
0: <laughs> this is Mary Smith's Krantz perspective on... Shay's Rebellion. Um so Rachel, you did a little bit of research into this looking into uh before we did the podcast. Can you tell me sort of your summary of sure. Shay's Rebellion?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I didn't actually realize that what she was talking about was Shay's Rebellion until I looked at your notes and I was like, Oh, that's what she's talking about. <laughs> and so then I wanted to remind myself of, oh, why why were they rebelling? Because if you really just read what Mary Cranch says, it's well, they chose to be in debt, so <laughs> it, it's obviously very one-sided. So really what happened is the U.S. had uh, war debts from the Revolutionary War. And on top of this, the northern state's economy was really based on trade with the West Indies, the British West Indies. Yeah. So w- once the war is over and they're not part of Britain anymore, there's not really any more trade with the West Indies. So the flow of gold and silver that had been coming for many years – through that trade, uh, just wasn't happening anymore. So now you just don't have gold and silver flowing in the economy. So as a result, state legislatures throughout the country start uh, printing paper money. And of course, we know what happens when you do that. You usually end up with inflation. Mm -hmm. So that caused an economic depression. So that hit the farmers the hardest, but it hit everybody. And now we still have those war debts, right? The war debts didn't go away. This just is exacerbating the fact that we have debts and there's no one to pay them, no money to pay them. So now the states are imposing taxes to pay the debts and they're based on, everybody's paying the same amount, basically. It's not income. And so that means that ordinary citizens really can't afford it. This is often about a third of their whole income is taxes. Then, of course, the states are passing a bunch of laws trying to fix this, but they're really just Band-Aid measures. You've got tender laws that are like, oh, you can use paper money to pay your debts. And then you've got stay laws that are like, oh, if someone owes you a debt, you can't actually enforce it. So it's <laughs> sort of giant mess of different people trying to fix the situation that actually makes everything even worse. And eventually people are like, we have had enough of this situation. Mm-hmm. I think you alluded to earlier, when people couldn't pay their debts, they're getting thrown in jail. They're having their lands auctioned off, right? So people's entire livelihoods are being destroyed of course, they're going to rebel. And that is really the context here when yes. Cranch is talking about, <laughs> oh, like they are just in debt and it's their problem. Like that's not really true.
0: <laughs> they just won't pay those debts.
1: <laughs> Right. I want to emphasize her relatives, like people like her husband, people like John Adams, people like people all around her of her class and of her family – are some of the people making these policies and making these laws and making things worse and they're the people that started the revolution and led the the politics of the revolution so it's a little bit ridiculous for her to be so <laughs> dismissive and, and another
0: thing that is interesting about the situation and she even explicitly brings it up is the government's not strong enough to deal with the situation uh also i like that she says like the people of. Have- the excess of liberty, which we've given people, which is just delightful. It's ruined them. But it's
1: just ruined them. <laughs> Sorry.
0: People, they used to just stay in their place. So when, when people started just not paying their taxes or just not paying lawyers or rebelling in sort of an organized way, the state didn't have any sort of method of putting this down other than local militias. Well, who's in the local militias? the poor people so (laughs) the poor people (laughs) so they are gonna arm these people that are then like oh screw you and that was shay's rebellion um and that was when the whole state eventually actually like opens fire and they fire like actual cannons on the people to try to get everybody back in line but this is such a classic example of like state violence versus the violence of the people and she is She's almost right to be afraid of anarchy because the the government is not functioning as it should. It cannot take care of the people and something needs to change. Uh, And there were good consequences from Shays' Rebellion in that if you look at the Constitutional Convention, which has not happened yet, America is still under the Articles of Confederation at this point. The Constitutional Convention is very inspired by all of the, the drama that's been going on with this rebellion and that helps form the type of government that they create uh, in a way that they'll be able to address some of these concerns. So the governor that fired on his people is voted out in a democratic election <laughs> and people <laughs> take the place who actually like do things to make things better.
1: And I would just add to that, some of what goes into the constitution is also reflecting some of the things that caused Shay's rebellion. You know, dealing oh, yes. with the idea that like, you know, the states individually couldn't force Britain to put trading agreements into place to start trade back up with the West Indies, but a consolidated federal government could put that pressure. And also they were like, we need to regulate interstate commerce. Everybody can't be printing their own money (laughs) going to work, like things like that. They, They learned some lessons. So I think it's just so interesting. She says she'd rather be poor than in debt. Like Like, who even says that?
0: And that is very interesting because it's definitely not most of the the farmers' fault that they're in debt. People, imagine leaving your farm to go fight the American Revolution and then coming back and having the state take your farm because you haven't been able to make money. That's just insulting. All right. So that was the political section.
1: Should we talk about the baby? She just, she frames this whole paragraph so beautifully, you know. Really builds up to it.
0: <laughs> I just, I did want to again give some kudos to Mrs. Cranch here because she knew she had something really good, and she waited to the end of the letter so she could just really relish it. Like she ends that letter with a bang, and I think this is somebody who knows how to. She's, she's written some correspondence.
1: I just, I mean, it's amazing to me that this that you can overshadow Shay's rebellion, but. <laughs> she did it.
0: Yes. uh, Just opening it with, we live in an age of discovery.
1: Beautiful. Did you know that it only takes five months?
0: (laughs) Uh, Oh, and so we have a, um, so she writes this letter first. She leaves a conspicuous blank for the people's names, but she knows that Abigail's going to know who these people are.
1: I wondered why she did that. It's like, did she think this letter was going to get handed around and she didn't want to be pointed out as a source of like serious gossip that is a very interesting question
0: because i know that um a lot of people do this and john adams the adams family does this quite a lot where they'll just write like the first initial of somebody's name and then like a line through if they're saying something
1: mean about them It's like it makes it okay
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean they've got some plausible deniability i guess but uh, some people do different things they say burn this letter at the bottom something like that we have a follow-up letter where she describes the situation. Here's another letter from Mary Smith Cranch. She says, she's writing to Abigail. She says, "What, what should you think if you should pick up a letter from a married lady whose husband is absent, directed to a gentleman with such sentences as these in it? I am distressed, distressed by many causes. What can we do? I know you would help me if you could. Come to me immediately. Or, oh, think of me and think of yourself. It alarms me. It was mysterious, but is no longer so. What will or can be done, I know not. I was yesterday at Germantown. They seem all of them to be very sensible of the injury that has been done. The family. It is a serious affair to break up such a large one, besides the disgrace that will forever attend even the innocent ones of it. A man looks very silly with a pair of horns stuck in his front, and yet to suffer the enemy of one's peace to be under the same roof, and to see, dividing her leering, I will not say tender, looks between himself and her paramour is too much for human nature to
1: bear. So did that letter say burn this letter?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to double check. Um, uh, But again, she's not saying their names. A man looks very silly with a pair of horns stuck in his front. I mean, it's just such a, yeah.
1: And everybody knows who she's talking about. so.
0: So writing a letter from England to America would at best arrive two months like maybe if you had like you caught like really good weather and everything was like a super straight shot it might be like a month and a half but it could be as long as three months before you get a letter i did want to point out that when mary cranch mentions that she's just found out that nabby is married nabby actually got married in june Yeah, she did. And then this letter was in September. And this is in September. And she just found out. So trying to write these hot gossip letters, like by the time Abigail Adams gets this letter and responds, that baby's six months old. (laughs) 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 And so in a Jane Austen situation, this is like heavy drama, peak Elizabeth is pacing and can't read the letter out loud because she's crying so hard type situation. It's just like worst case scenario is something like this. But this is real life. And so what has happened? is a woman has had an affair. She's had a baby that cannot be her husband's. And her husband just decides, let's pretend everything's fine. (laughs) They have the man apparently living in their house, from what I can gather from this situation, they're like living in the same area. And they just pretend, you know what? We're just gonna live with this because in real life, this stuff happens. And sometimes you just have to deal with it. So I think probably worse the worst case scenario is people like Abigail Adams and everybody gossiping about them behind their backs. But like, really, you just sort of have to deal with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very interesting way, too, in which this Mrs. Palmer does deal with it, which is to just sort of insist on this medical impossibility. (laughs) Everybody knows is a medical impossibility and be like, oh, I didn't have any clothes ready for this baby because early like
0: i was so surprised yes but like what else can you do it's like unacceptable but divorce would also be unacceptable and apparently the the dad's fine with it not fine but like the dad's willing to live with it so i just think that's that's sort of an interesting situation of how some sort of scandalous situation uh was actually in reality handled at this time like you know she wasn't shunned out of the family uh people were still acknowledged they just raised this girl And everybody knew the open secret,
1: and they just lived with it. Yeah. I I mean, it is pretty interesting. I feel like people probably imagine there's more shunning in history. Yeah. (laughs) But there's probably just more of this. (laughs) Yeah. The big message of this letter is life is vastly more dramatic than fiction.
0: It's dramatic, and it's messier, and people are sick, and things are gross. But it happened, and people survived.
1: Mostly, some didn't (laughs) vaccinate your children a small percentage of people survived
0: (laughs) (laughs) Rachel this was a delight thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast
1: I had a great time this was a very good use of my Friday evening thank you all
0: right um so
1: I will as usual have um some
0: notes and some additional readings if you're interested in the show notes uh but until next time I just want you to know that I am as ever your most obedient and humble servant